morning and welcome to the skinny airing here on Fridays on WMNF from 11 a.m. to noon. I'm Ray Rowe, editor-in-chief at Creative Loafing Tampa Bay, joined by my co-host, Ben Montgomery, who I want to thank for doing the show pretty much solo with Sean Canan last year as I dealt with, or last week as I dealt with pneumonia. So thanks, Ben. Hey, you got it, Ray, anytime. Ben's got a great book here. Uh, I don't know if we'll get a chance to talk to it, but uh, it's got our esteemed governor on the front, and it's called The Courage to Be Free. Um, really excited to see Ben diving into that. Um, we're also, we're going to, we got a packed show, uh, today. We are, uh, like I said, a publisher, Patrick Mantega is here. Um, we'll also be joined by author and historian, Dr. Sarah McNamara. And in addition Very to, exciting. um, immigration attorney, Danielle Hernandez. But right now, uh, we're going to bring in our other co-host, Mitch Perry, Florida Phoenix reporter, uh, Mitch Perry. He usually sits in this chair right here. He's been in Tallahassee. He's up there for the 60 day legislative session, but he's carved out some time for us to get caught up. Um, do we have Mitch? Uh, yes. Good morning, guys. Hey, Mitch, Mitch, how are you? Hey, good to hear you. It sounds nice and clear up here in Tallahassee. Good. Are you having a great time up there? Yeah. Well, you know, it, it sounds weird, right? Because, you know, obviously a lot of this legislation is really, frankly, disturbing. But yeah, I am. I mean, this is really intense. You, you know, these meetings start today, even at Friday at 8 a.m., uh, they go very late, and there's a lot to cover. But you know, I'm I'm glad somebody's got to chronicle this, right? So I'm I'm glad I'm here to do it. So I know we only have you for like ten minutes here, but can you kind of give give us a rundown of some of the big takeaways here uh, that you've uh, been reporting on? Sure. Yeah, it's been another intense week. Um, I would say, of course, last night we had the Senate. Uh, they're one vote away from passing the six week abortion bill, which I have to tell you guys, there's a lot, obviously, a lot of stuff happening up here. But I'm still really shocked that this is going to happen. I mean, I think this is. The way this bill was proposed in terms of uh, women having to see a doctor twice um, before, you know, uh, if they were to get an abortion if within six weeks, this is as radical as anything in the country. And I, you know, maybe Ron DeSantis won't sign it. You know, I, I, there was an article in Newsweek this week that said this would basically uh, kill his presidential ambitions. And I think on a national scale, look, it's just, it's not popular. Uh, Six-week abortion ban in America, we saw this in the 2022 uh, midterm elections nationally, if not in Florida. Uh, these abortion restrictions are not, uh, majority of people don't want it. So that that continues to surprise me. Um, we had a big, the, you know, union busting bill, as people would describe it, uh, basically is, uh, is done in the Senate. It's still got a ways to go in the House, but it's going to pass. And this is interesting, uh, Ray and Ben, and that is, Man, it just tells you how important this, that election was last November, right? I mean, we all know Democrats didn't come out to vote. So the Democrats have this super minority, if you will, right? Only 12 senators in the 40-member Senate, 28 Republicans, 12 uh, Democrats. This bill is a union bill, which basically uh, it would remove the automatic payment deduction of union dues out of um, you know union members. Uh, and also, uh, if less than 60% of the workforce aren't due pay, dues paying members, the union has to decertify, which is a very big deal. So five Republicans switched party lines on this vote to vote against it. And, but yet, because it was 28 to 12, the final vote, I think was 23, 17. When I was up here four years ago, the breakdown was 23 to 17, which meant if five Republicans who had voted against it then, this thing would never have seen the, the time of day. It wouldn't, yeah. it wouldn't happen. So, you know, this has been on the wish list of Republicans for years. There's no real reason that you need to get this done other than it's another notch in Governor DeSantis's uh, belt in terms of boasting about all these things he's done to make Florida 
this citadel of uh, conservative uh, thought. But um, it just, again, Democrats, Jay Collins, right, one of the folks who beat uh, in Tampa, who beat uh, Janet Cruz, he's uh, part of that big group that came in here, and uh, he voted on that. And I want to mention Jay Collins. I know you're going to be talking about uh, Cuba politics, uh, guys, in a, in a little while with Patrick and the uh, and the author you have there. Let's talk about this. This uh, was a press conference uh, Monday morning where Senator Jay Collins, newly elected last November, uh introduced that he's going to have a resolution in the Senate where he's going to condemn, and the I guess the whole body will condemn the Cuban government, but also the fact that uh, some local elected officials met with the Cuban ambassador a month ago in, uh, or four weeks ago in, in uh, Tampa, right? Uh, some of you, some of our listeners probably saw that. There was some video taken of that. Some uh, Cuban exile protesters crashed the meeting. Okay, so that happened. And, you know, the politics, of course, of Tampa, they're different than Miami in terms of trying to have uh, uh, establish, re- reestablish ties to the Cuban government that's been going on for a decade or so. Congresswoman Kathy Castor has been very instrumental in that. She went to Cuba. She was the first congresswoman, really, I think, I don't know, since the embargo to say that the embargo should end. Um, and yet now all of a sudden it's not cool to go ahead and try to uh, coordinate with Cuban members of the Cuban government. So this resolution calls out Tampa City Council member Guido Maniscalco, Hillsborough County School Board member Karen Perez, and Cindy Stewart, who's the uh, clerk of the court in Hillsborough County, for a meeting with a Cuban ambassador. It's kind of like McCarthyism, you know, and, and, and this press conference, Danny Alvarez uh, from the Hillsborough area absolutely trashed uh, the folks who met with the ambassador and said it was disgusting. And um, yeah, that was something that for those of us from the Tampa Bay area took particular note of. Yeah, and I, I, Mitch, I appreciate the update out of Tallahassee. I think that's a great segue, you know, in, into what we're talking about here. And it's a great setup for, for that particular event that occurred earlier this month, almost a month ago. Um, you know, Celine San Feliz mentioned this in the Axios newsletter this morning, but unaffiliated Latino voters now represent the largest uh, percentage of Latino voters in Florida. Um, and, you know, stand to be a huge swing of voter group. And um, I welcome some pushback on, on this. Obviously, we can talk about human rights violations and questionable living conditions in, in, in Cuba. And, you, you know, you kind of alluded to it. There was this meeting. Um, but the Tampa-Cuba relationship is one of the most complicated um, things that we have going on here, right? You know, a lot of that has to deal with yeah. more than 60 years long embargo. And, and as you said, uh, Patrick Mantega is here. He's the publisher of a hundred-year-old trilingual um, Tampa newspaper, um, and he made a really good argument about this so-called uh, um, outrage about the visit from the ambassador. So I just wanted to formally welcome uh, Patrick uh, to the WMNF studio here. Thank you, Patrick. Appreciate it, um, Patrick. Your your column kind of wondered out loud about the outrage about the ambassador coming to Tampa, and suggested uh, that you suggested that the same outrage doesn't exist. Um, in Miami. Can you kind of expand on that and maybe touch on the history of of your newspaper's relationship to Cuba? I mean, your father or or grandfather was an assassination. Well, I I don't want to call it that, but there was some attack on on the family home. Yeah, so um, uh, in our newspaper, uh, it's 101 years old. Uh, We've always been involved in Cuba politics. The uh, Tampa was a city that looked southward more than it looked northward. Um, uh, Tampa's economy and Florida's economy in uh, uh, 1900, 1910, 1920 uh, was 
Cuba cigars. I mean, you know, the uh, uh, 75% of the manufacturing output of Florida was cigars rolled here in Tampa. And so that tobacco came from uh, uh, Cuba. Uh, the workers, many of them came from Cuba. And Tampa's always been a place that uh, has been a, uh, um, uh, associated with Cuba politics. Uh, uh, Marti came here and, and gathered his thoughts about the revolution and, 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 and getting overthrowing Spain and Cuba. And, and that revolution was started here. Uh, the note to, pat, to start the revolution was, was written here in, in Tampa. And so you've always had this relationship, and most people have no idea this relationship ever existed because the embargoes lasted so long. And it's been taboo. And so, you know, we were getting things better. You know, Obama had opened things up. Uh, Cuba's economy was improving with uh, the U.S. Um, doing tourism there. And um, Donald Trump happened. Uh, the so-called sonic attack uh, on the embassy happened. Uh, now the U.S. says that was not a sonic attack. It wasn't the Cubans. Um, but uh, they went back on the list of terrorist nations because of it. And uh, these people who are yelling about the ambassador visiting here are using that, even though the reality is, is they shouldn't be on the list of terrorist nations. And, um, and you know, the people who are supporting getting U.S. closer to Cuba and, and dropping the embargo now say, oh, well, it's all different. But it isn't all different. What's different is, is that the president, Obama, is no longer supporting this, and Biden hasn't gone back to the days of uh, what Obama was doing. And so they're just, uh, they're hiding for cover. They don't want to be the leader. They don't want to be the only person out there. They're fine to, if you're a Democrat, to get behind whatever the Democratic president's doing. But they're, they're scared to be out there by themselves. And uh, if you're just joining us, you're listening to The Skinny here on WMNF Tampa, here with Ben Montgomery. And the voice you just heard is Patrick Mantega. He's the publisher of the 101-year-old trilingual Tampa newspaper, like I said. And we're talking about a recent trip to Tampa um, from the Cuban ambassador, Rivera. Um, Patrick, in your column, we, we've talked about the outrage, why people are angry. Mitch really set that up uh, really well. Uh, but you made an argument about the embargo is not really about what the narrative is. It's it's about money. Yeah. because and, and you referenced Miami. Could you kind of explain your, your take there? Well, the embargo um, has created a whole industry. Uh, you have Radio Marti, TV Marti. You have people employed there, millions of dollars being spent there. There's millions of dollars in grants that go to uh, universities in the state of Florida to decide how Cuba's going to look after we after they suddenly become a democracy. Um, and so there's this whole industry. Now there's a whole industry of, um, of people who sell travel to Cuba, people who ship things to Cuba, uh, because you can't use normal channels. And it's such a specialty thing that you have, you know, all these shops that if you normalize relationships, they'd all go out of business. And, um, and then you have what is happening completely underground, and that is that there are people uh, in Miami, Cubans, who have family over there, and they are shipping them money to buy property, to start businesses. Um, it's a completely illegal, um, but this is what's happening. Um, there's not normal banking channels in Cuba because the U.S. has cut Cuba off from banking. And so uh, these people are bankrolling uh, changes there. And so when the ambassador went to Miami, nobody said a word. And Miami's been the place where, you know, all the radicals would be and you'd get all the yelling. 
And so when she comes to Tampa, all of a sudden, they start to scream about it. And Tampa's always been the more moderate place. And and so, you know, it just it was very strange that this happened. But, you know, when you start yelling, oh, we want freedom for Cuba, well, what does that mean? Freedom to do what? Freedom to associate? Uh, I don't have that. If I had talked to the uh, ambassador here, freedom to travel. Well, the U.S. says I can't travel to Cuba. Uh, freedom to do business. Why well, can't do business with Cuba? So, you know, how about let's scream about freedom over here a little bit instead of worrying about so much about freedom in Cuba. Yeah, that's uh, you're talking about the SMEs or they call them PMEs or mm-hmm. um, over there. Um, you're deeply on the on the inside of this. Um, you know, you, your paper, ours. We had separate meetings with the with the ambassador that were off the record. Yeah. Um, and I think for listeners, can you explain? I mean, you alluded to it in the beginning. The Tampa-Cuba connection, we like you said, we look south more than we look anywhere else. It is so, so deep, and it's still so active today. Can you explain your understanding of how uh, the ambassador ended up here and, and why uh, sure. she, she was here? Well, the ambassador was invited. Uh, she is, uh, according to her, able to travel. At one point, the Cuban ambassadors were restricted to a small area around Washington, D.C., and out, outside of that, they had to get permission. But she says she no longer needs that. And uh, so she was invited here by Shoemaker Loop. They sent a letter and asked her to come down. And then there was arrangements made for meetings with people like yourself and my newspaper and, and uh, you know, the aquarium and others. Um, and... Um, and Cuba is interested in, in renewing relations with Tampa. And Tampa is interested in renewing relations with Cuba. And so, you know, to get an update from her on how the Cuban economy is doing, to get an update for her from her on their view of the U.S., is it warming relations, is it not, uh, you know, how they see things going, is very important. And, and it's also very important because Tampa currently is getting wave after wave of Cubans fleeing the country because the economy is so bad there that they just want to have the ability to buy the food they want to buy. And, and so they're, they're streaming here to Tampa, and you've got classrooms full of Cubans. And so the negative, their economy and our effort to crush their economy is creating a negative effect here with immigration and it impacting our schools and impacting other people. I mean, I know a gentleman who just got five relatives out of Cuba, and now he's got to find five jobs. For, for his relatives, you know, it's... Uh, and so, not, not yeah, to mention housing in a place where that's increasingly difficult. Sure, yeah. yeah. Mitch, is that you there? Yeah, yeah, I want to interject because I actually got to go in a few minutes, but, um, you know, Patrick references is I did a story when I was still at Bay News 9 about this, trying to, you know, we've had this huge um, surge uh, of, of undocumented immigrants, right, through the, the border that's maybe slowed down the last few months here, but there's a whole lot more uh, Cubans in the Tampa Bay area than there were, you know, a year and a half ago. And, and uh, I, I did a story, like I said, I was trying to find uh, somebody to, to, to chronicle and show their experience. And, and I did, I was lucky to, to be able to do that. I also want to say here before I go about this, this, you know, the ramifications of this meeting in terms of how it's being looked at in Tallahassee. Like I said, you know, Jay Collins, uh, he was quoted, I have, I'm looking at my story I wrote the other day. He said, you know, we here in the free state of Florida have nothing to gain from meeting with the leadership of that totalitarian, totalitarian regime, end of story. And, uh, you know, again, I reached out to all three locally elected officials. Actually, I also reached out to Ron Cristaldi. He did not respond for comment. Um, Guido, like I mentioned, Guido Mascalco was there, Cindy Stewart, Karen Perez. Uh, Cindy Stewart did send me a statement. 
Guido was kind of squeamish. He said he, he didn't know if the ambassador was there or not. I've heard others say that he did, but what have you. Um, but uh, most interestingly, Kathy Castor, right, because I, I'm so glad to speak with Congresswoman Castor because, as I said earlier, she's been a big champion of this, uh, at least in the last in the 2010s. Uh, and in a story on News Channel 8, she was uh, basically dismissing the Cuban ambassador. I think she came here to, quote, unquote, make nice. So I was very interested to get you know where she's at in all this. And she said that basically she feels a little let down by the Cuban government, referencing specifically the the the, um, the lockdown of uh, protesters uh, from the summer of 2021 when they had the big you know the first big uh, uh, protest there in a long time against the Cuban government. You know, and, and it's true. Human Rights Watch did note uh, has noted that there was uh, over 150 people who were unfairly um, you know detained, what have you. So, but she said that was kind of a, a turning point for her a little bit. Now I don't know. You can say that's the politics of the moment right now or what have you i did find that was kind of interesting so she's not as maybe as gung-ho as she was years ago in terms of uh, fostering these relations but as patrick says also people are waiting to see where joe biden is in all this you had where what obama did which was so far ranging uh in the first time and, and over at that time over 50 years uh trump puts it all you know takes a lot of those um those things away Biden slowly has done a few things, but has been pretty, pretty low key about it all. But uh, I have to get going right now. Bitch, uh, thanks for joining us. The show. And, and yeah, and I'll be back in studio. There's, there's going to be a break next week, so we'll come down to Tampa for the weekend. So I'll, I'll be back next week. Looking forward to seeing you guys. Right on. Thanks, Mitch. And um, again, that's the voice of Mitch Perry, Florida Phoenix reporter and co-host of The Skinny here on WMNF. Uh, Tampa joining us live from Tallahassee. We're here in the studio with uh, my co-host Ben Montgomery and Lagacetta's publisher Patrick Mantega. Uh, you can we'll see if we can squeeze in some phone calls. It's a very Ebor show today. Um, Dr. Sarah McNamara, who was uh, a guest of honor last night at the Cuban Club. Uh, thank you, Patrick, for hosting um, everybody last night. She's here. We're going to talk about that. I, we can probably squeeze in some phone calls here. Eight one three two three nine nine six six three. We would love to hear a listener's reaction uh, and experience with Tampa's relationship with Cuban and, and what it means to you and, and what, uh, you know, the, the ambassador's visit means to you. Does it uh, matter to you? I um, love an Ybor-centric show. Maybe we should do this like once a month. I, th- I think there are, I mean, as, as Dr. McNamara alluded to uh, yesterday and last night, there are so many stories um, in Ybor and so many different versions of, of Ybor, as, as Manny Leto um, kind of pointed out. We do have a text message here. Uh, Bubba texting us. Great job with the show. Mitch is right. Voting matters. Vote, you know, elections have major consequences. If you want to send a text, um, 813-433-0885. You can text us. You can call us. 813-239-9663, or you can send an email to dj at wmnf.org. So I, we, a, I, I just have a sort of naive question here, Ray, okay. if you mind. I wonder if, you, if, um, if Patrick, if you can speak to this. Uh, why is it important? So uh, Tampa, of course, draws people from all over the place, and a lot of people from the Midwest, it turns out, uh, who arrive here and sort of uh, at some point realize... Uh, they got to start paying attention to Cuban politics. Um, why is it why is it important for us uh, to to know uh, to know what's going on to know the machinations? Before the embargo, Tampa was a uh, border city. We don't feel like a border city anymore, and our border was uh, 
shared with the Cubans. And so uh, Havana was very close to us. So uh, there were Little League teams that would uh, get on a plane and fly down to play a Cuban team. If you were uh, the queen of the Latin American fiesta, you'd go down there and and uh, meet with government officials and have your picture taken. Um, uh, you know, uh, you would move cars and automobiles and, and tractors and agriculture goods and all those things just were constantly moving back and forth with Cuba. And so I don't think Tampa understands what it misses. You know, uh, currently, I think there's about 40 flights uh, between Cuba and Miami. Um, that could easily be 40 flights between Tampa. Mm-hmm. Each one of those flights is a uh, revenue. Uh, cruise ships going to Cuba, we had some. We currently don't. Uh, but that is a revenue producer. Uh Working with people like uh, our electric company, uh, working with them to try and get a better electrical grid could be money for here. Construction companies here would be making money. Uh, People selling paints, you name it. And then also the uh, tourism from Tampa uh, going to romantic Havana and then Cuba uh, would boost their economy tremendously. Uh, During the Obama administration, uh, when I traveled there, uh, the U.S., tourism in Havana had caused 500 private restaurants to be opened. Currently today, it might be 25. And so that was our withdrawing, hurt their economy. You know, creating a middle class in Cuba is probably the best way for Cubans to start uh, creating the government that they would more appreciate. But, you know, know, these protests last year, I think, was misconstrued here. They were coming out of COVID. They had been locked down horribly. They didn't get payments like we did in the U.S., where you, the U.S. government writing you a check to hang out in your house. And so they were hurting tremendously. Um, and so that that was frustration you saw on the streets. They didn't have food. They didn't have electricity. didn't have good water. And they were just protesting out of sheer frustration. They were not protesting because they wanted a second party. Uh, they were protesting because they wanted food. And so we want to spend it as its freedom. Well, there's a lot of freedom. Freedom not to be hungry is a great freedom. Freedom not to be scared. Freedom, you know, there, there's a lot of freedom abuses in, in, in Central and Latin America. And some of them and some of our friends. I mean, you know, living in northern Mexico is not a great place to live at the moment because you're not free there from crime. It's It's all over. And so, you know, Cuba's has some bad things. Cuba has some good things. And and the problem is we won't talk about it. And so we won't judge Cuba for what it is. We won't understand what it is not. And I think if we did that, we would understand that um, there's no reason to treat them differently than we treat Saudi Arabia, uh, Colombia, uh, Haiti, or many other places. And uh, that's the voice of Patrick Mantega, the publisher of Tampa's 101-year-old trilingual newspaper. Like I said, if you subscribe to it, it's in your mailbox right now. Uh, You can find it in boxes um, around town. And as Patrick says, if you want to know more... Pick up a paper. Yeah, you can't. Uh, we're yeah. not online. You got to. I beg him yeah. to. I'm, I'm going to say, hey, let's let us put that post online. Um, and, and we're talking about Cuba. We talk about the embargo. We think about Fidel Castro. But our next guest has a direct connection to a generation of Tampanos who who predate the Castro Batista history. And, and Dr. Uh, Sarah McNamara is a scholar. 
historian and native Tampeño. Is Tampeño good for you or do you prefer a different one? Tampeño is totally fine. Okay, Tampeño. <laughs> um, last night she joked um, that she is only five feet tall, but she is truly <laughs> a giant of Ybor history when it comes to documenting, uh, documenting the district's women. And she has a new book out. It's called Ybor City, Crucible of the Latina South. Um, it's out on April 11th, uh, available for pre-order now. It tells the story of immigrant and U.S.-born Latinos and the Latinos who, who fought for survival um, across generations against the backdrop of a reconstructed um, Southern order. Yesterday, kind of alluded to this, uh, the city of Tampa unveiled a mural by Tampa artist Michelle Sawyer that commemorates the 1937 anti-fascist women mar- women's march. And depending on what newspaper you read back then, uh, it was between 5,000 and 7,000 women taking part in this march from Ebor to the downtown courthouse. And at the time, it was the largest collection of Latina women to act um, on a single issue. Um, and the mural features three women. Um, I'm going to probably mess up these names. Dolores uh, Ibayuri, right? Yep. Um, who, who rallied against Franco, uh, Guatemalan labor organizer Luisa Moreno, and um, our guest, Dr. Sarah McNamara's great aunt, uh, Margo Falcon Blanco, who was born in Ybor City. And um, yesterday at the Cuban club, uh, Manny Leto, Sarah, mentioned um, how your aunt Margo was an abuela who adopted him when he joined the uh, Ybor City Museum. Can you talk about who Aunt Margot was for you and, and what it's been like to bring all this research to the public? It's, I mean, this is like a decade-long process for you, right? It was a decade-long process, right? I'm, and feel free to call me Sarah. Okay, cool, <laughs> yeah. cool. I was like, oh, man, it's I just of- called a doctor by your first name. <laughs> you could totally do that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, no. So it was a decade-long process, right, at least from beginning graduate school, writing the dissertation, and then rewriting everything to make it a book that other people would want to read because nobody wants to read a dissertation. I don't recommend you know, going down that rabbit hole. And I think we all hope nobody ever reads them. But the um, the process took, it, it meant doing oral histories, talking to community members, and then doing the research that took me from um, the city of Tampa to Tallahassee to work in the National Archives and Library of Congress and a lot of work in um, labor union archives that are located at the University of Maryland. But in the process of doing that, I found this story of women who collectively protested fascism and really became the front um, people and leaders within this movement throughout Florida. But what it really reminds me of and along the lines of what Patrick was talking about is remembering different legacies, right? When you come to Florida and you think about Cuban American politics, it has such a stronghold on the state, but it's only a particular version of Cuban American politics that has a stronghold on the state. And that comes out of the post 59 generation that migrated here and the building of Miami and the building of exile politics and also the passing of legislation that was passed in a moment where anti-communism was at the forefront. And in the process of doing that, right, this group that came to Miami was very different than those who came over the course of three generations to Tampa. They were predominantly middle and upper class. The majority of them were white, whereas those who came to Tampa were more multi-ethnic. They were multiracial. They had leftist politics, and they were leaving a government that they saw as politically oppressive. They were saying, like, hey, like, we don't have access to jobs. We don't have access to fair labor, and we think that we can find these things in different ways. They did find conflict when they were in Florida, but that meant that their politics were different. And it also created a foundation of a very very different Cuban-American politic that emerged and in some ways very much remains in Tampa. 
So the way that I write about it isn't that Florida is a state with one stagnant Cuban-American politic. It's one with many. And when people migrate, they also bring their experiences with them and the way that they join community and the way that they understand themselves. It's all in relation to those experiences as well. Right. If you're just joining us, uh, you're listening to The Skinny. That's the voice of Dr. Sarah McNamara. She has a new book coming out next month. Um, it's called Ebor City, The Crucible of the Latina South. It's out on pre-order right now. I'm sorry to cut you off there, Ben. I think you had a question. No, no, oh, okay. Um, last night, uh, the Cuban Club hosted a, a wonderful reception and, and talked. Gary Mormino was there. Uh, Michelle Sawyer, who painted the mural we mentioned, um, was there. And um, Dr. McNamara, who I'm going to... Sarah. <laughs> It's a hard a hard habit to undo at this point. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and later on in the show, we're going to bring uh, Danielle Hernandez on. Um, your grandma's Ebor was driven by women, uh, yeah. Dr. McNamara, and uh, your work uh, has very much been rooted in, in women's studies. Mm-hmm. What has the release and rollout of this book um, taught you about your role as a Latina woman uh, in the South? I mean, it the process of doing this book when you look at Latinx history, right right now, there is an emergence of historians who are writing about Latinxes in the U.S. South. And the, even the idea of doing that is something that's really new to the point where there are about six of us who I can name off the top of my head who are doing this. There's not many of us. The majority of work on Latinxes in the region is on Texas. But outside of Texas, there's pretty much there's and by I say pretty much nothing like there's very little um we're entering the second generation of scholarship on that and my book is the only one that centers on women and what I really wanted to do was to think about gender and sexuality in a meaningful way and the 1930s in Ybor City is something where you see this moment where there is an unprecedented amount of Latina based power and in many ways because women all of a sudden had tons of economic power. They were, by and large, the majority of the people who were working in Cuban cigar factories in the midst of the depression, most cigar factories fired in mass men who worked in the cigar factories and they hired women who they hired to do labor at a quarter of the wage that men had been doing it. Other factories mechanized, um, but even though they were making less money, the way that they describe it is that they were making money. And without them doing that, there wouldn't have been a path for survival. So by realizing right their own sense of economic power, they also have political power. And they use that to lobby for those who are living in Ybor as citizens. Right By this portion, people in Ybor City had been living in Tampa for you know like 40 years. And they're saying... We are not recognized. We're not treated equally. We are, you know, persecuted by these extra legal groups. We're experiencing lynching in our community and vigilante violence. And if men had collectively mobilized the way that women had, there would have been serious physical repercussions. But women became these cultural arbiters in a way that they couldn't be. And for myself, when I sit back and think about this, I, in a way, I think about all the questions I would have asked my grandmother that I never asked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because she didn't show you, she didn't really show you that picture of the march until you were how old? She, she showed it to me when I was about 16. So, um, I mean, not not it's not Manny's fault. He got my family members a little mixed up. It's always up. Manny's <laughs> fault. Manny, if you're listening, Manny Leto, it's always your fault, man. Manny, you're about to get dragged. Yeah, no. he. Hey, um, <laughs> I, I like Manny a Okay, lot. Ben, ben likes like Manny. Manny. Ben likes Manny. Yeah. <laughs> Manny knew my grandmother, who was named Norma Alfonso. 
um, he knew my grandmother. So she was one of the docents and she was one of the abuelitas who loved him at the Ybor City Museum. At the time, it was the early 2000s and they were just gushing. They're like, oh my gosh, there's a guy in their 20s who's now leading the Ybor City Museum <laughs> Society. Like, they were in love. And they loved that he was in his 20s. I think that they saw him as like being a new generation, but then they're also like, he is just so cute. It's the way that I remembered them talking about him. But I was a teenager. And I was like, I don't know who this guy is. I didn't put it together until well, he was like, because he, 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 he went to school in Texas too, right? You kind of have a little bit of that uh, <laughs> in, in common, but he was like a historian. Yeah. I mean, everybody in this room knows Manny Leto. So Manny Leto uh, yep. currently is the executive director over at Preserve the Berg. But um, I don't know if he wants me to say this, but he said it last night. He said his heart is in Ybor City. <laughs> yeah. Um, and in no, Tampa, and that's is. how I know Manny, you know, through my experiences. He is um, one of the Tampa. most passionate, and I think just consistently the most supportive people who I have met um, when it comes to me doing this work. But that was how I knew him. But the woman who's in the mural, Margot Falcon, she's my great aunt. And what the, I guess sitting back now, what I think about, like the concept to me at 16 that my aunt Margot like had a mother who was also in the march. She's also delineated. Um, her name's Amelia Alvarez and she's one of the characters in my book, but you don't really know that I'm related to, to her initially as I'm writing. Spoiler. Yeah, well, you'll find out, you know, at page, I think eight. <laughs> so, um, but um, the concept that she had a mom was completely foreign to me. And I don't think I put together that she was a political agent for change until I was in graduate school. To me, these pictures were just things that my grandmother showed me and things that she told me. And her work to keep the culture of Ybor City alive was just second nature. I didn't think of it as unique until I went to college. And I went to the University of Florida for undergrad. And that was the first time that I encountered a group of people who were, you know, who were also Latinxes, but who were coming from Miami. And I met. I was introduced to a totally different political and social identity than I had ever known or yeah, been a part of. Isn't it? And I was just like, whoa, like not only do I not know this, but I don't relate um, to this in the same way. And that was when I just dove into political research on Florida. And out of, I mean, out of that, I ended up writing a thesis. I went to grad school and, you know, here we are. And one of the things that I just want to do is like complicate the way that we understand immigrants and immigration um, and different migrant waves. Like my next book is going to look at the political culture of immigration in Florida and how it shapes the electoral system, right? Different, um, different generations of migration understand themselves differently. So coming from the same location can iterate or can result in a totally different sense of self. And it, you know, asking those questions came from my own personal experiences, but there's something that it lives alive and is consistent generationally. And you can cut me off at any time. No, I'm no, a you're fine. I, 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 I am, I am fascinated by this. How are they practically, how are they communicating in 1930? How are they organizing? Oh, they had very much had a transnational network. Um, one of my good friends, her name is Aria Lam. Her last name is spelled L-A-M-B-E. She wrote a book on the anti-fascist movement in Cuba. Right. So during this period of time, there was a rising right leaning government in Cuba as well. Right. The rise of fascism around the world was something that didn't just happen in Spain, even though we're talking about the Spanish Civil War, which globally becomes the thing that people focus on. But by calling it the Spanish Civil War, we're all apt to think, OK, this is contained to Spain. 
But the Spanish Civil War becomes so important because it's kind of like the precursor to what World War II is, right? You have very much the same actors who are involved, those who become part of the Axis powers. You have Nazi Germany and um, Italy's Mussolini government, right, who are all giving aid and who, right, the bombing of Guernica was done by the Luftwaffe. But the, you um, in Cuba, you have the rise of a right-wing government. You see the same thing in Brazil. Another historian named Catherine Marino has written about women's activism. It's called Feminism for the Americas, about what is happening there as also a transnational movement. So here in Tampa, what they're doing is that they're communicating um, through via press is a big way that they're doing it. La Gaceta is at the helm of that. Victoriano Mantega, he wrote a daily column that was reporting on the anti-fascist movement and also what was happening in Cuba and how people were collaborating. And when I talk to my friend Ariel, what she explains is that people are doing the same thing, right? They're writing letters between each other. Um, they're identifying people who live in Tampa who are um, anti-fascist fighters. And she's like, they see what's happening in Tampa as a part of what they are also a part of. Uh, that's the voice of Dr. Sarah McNamara. She has a new book out April 11th. It's called Ebor City, the Crucible of the Latina South. You're listening to The Skinny here on WMNF Tampa. Sarah, the second chapter of, of the book, I think, is your favorite. It's about anti-fascism and collective organizing by women, which uh, Ben asked about how they were communicating. And I'm curious to bring in Danielle Hernandez, um, an immigration attorney based in Ebor City, who actively works with mostly Latino asylum seekers. Mm. And, you know, we talk about immigration immigrants and, and Latinas specifically. I'm wondering, Danielle, um, if you're there, um, are you there with us? Good morning. Yes, Good morning. How are you? Um, I, I wanted to know, you know, you're here um, working with Latina asylum seekers and, and you get to see them through that process and you undoubtedly follow up with them after that process uh, goes through. Um, how do Latinas play in Tampa today politically and organizing? What are their concerns and how are they different and the same uh, with many of the concerns discussed um, in Dr. McNamara's book? You know, I really enjoyed listening about your book yesterday and at practicing in Ybor City. I feel like this; these are stories that I'm actually bringing to clients and new arriving Latinas to help them kind of find their voice and their identity here as newly transplanted immigrants. So I kind of feel right now, I, I like your the topic of your next book, doctor. Um, the political climate has really kind of muted a lot of the Latinas and people are right now back to a sense of, let me just be quiet, mind my business and work. Um, and not get involved and not be um, aware of what's going on in our, our local Tampa politics, in our local state politics. So I feel, I get, I'm an immigration attorney, but one of my side hobbies, I do have a radio show in Spanish language where I do cover politics. Uh -huh. And I think it's my duty to let them be aware of, hey, this is um, what's going on in the city council. This is what's going on in our local elections. And even though you don't have the right to vote just yet, you will and you, you should know that everything that happens in this city affects you on a local level. So I kind of went off on a tangent, but I'm highly passionate about this subject because I think that the people that have arrived in the last couple of years are having a hard time integrating back in. So I, I just loved seeing that march. That presentation was beautiful and it actually really inspired me to continue um, 
Danielle, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Danielle. So that was the voice of Danielle Hernandez, an immigration attorney based in Ybor, uh, who actively works with uh, mostly Latina asylum seekers. Yeah. And um, it's great. I saw her yesterday, and she's uh, referring to a mural and, and a marker. Yeah. And, and we're on the radio. We have to remind people uh, this marker was just unveiled yesterday. It's right in front of the Ybor City Development Corporation. Um, it's on the... Uh, eastern end of 7th, per se, before Columbia, in between Columbia South and Dirty Shame. Of, uh, 7th Avenue between uh, 20th and 21st Street. And that, it's a beautiful the, marker. The address is 2015 East 7th Avenue. So if you're heading down to the Columbia restaurant, you will see it as you're heading down that way. But Danielle, I really appreciate what you're saying. And I, I totally, I 100% agree. That's one of the things that I talk about when I'm, or at least that I thought about a lot when I was writing the book, even the terminology that I was using. Because in Tampa, we don't oftentimes hear Latino, like we hear Latin more often, which was the word that those who were white used to describe people in Ybor City for a long time. But over time, right, if when people were looking for political inclusion, they adopted it themselves. Um, but the way that I write about it is by reinvoking terminologies that are alive. It's able to connect multiple generations of people together because what those in Ybor City experienced during the 1930s and before in 1940s, um, political exclusion and discrimination and even violence is not dissimilar from what people experience today, be that in the form of laws that are passed um, from you know 287G that we see in many different counties throughout the South, which is a, um, a piece of legislation that permits racial profiling um, among local governments. But that so much so many politics are local. And if you aren't looking at what's happening at the local level, that's where you get to what happens at the national level. Yeah, Absolutely. it's been super fascinating to uh, to be in the same space as Dr. Mike McNamara. It's funny, I, I read the Lagaceta every Friday when I walk into the office and it's always got these old pictures on the front. And oftentimes, so many times, they're pictures of women. And, and the caption and, and, and the copy that goes along with that is always talking about Yes, these are women, but they were organizers and things like that. So you're getting like to touch it on, on the paper. And then you listen to Dr. McNamara talk and you're really listening to somebody whose life for the last decade, a large portion of it, has yeah. been dedicated to researching that. It's all manifesting itself in this book. It's been a really fascinating run up. And I want to talk about the anniversary of the march a little bit later. Um, one thing we do on the show here and the reason they asked us to come do this show is just because we're kind of a little bit open maybe to a fault about the jobs that we do. And, and the other night, uh, Dr. McNamara, Jane Goodall was in town mm -hmm. and she was describing how scientists used to criticize her because of the way she more or less humanized chimpanzees in a way, yeah. acknowledging their emotions. And these other scientists, uh, they told her she had to be objective, right? But, but Dr. Goodall argued that objectivity um, has bred so much cruelty, specifically in the scientific community. And, and I think there's a parallel there, right? History is personal. Yeah. Right. You talked about that yesterday. So I'm, I'm curious, how do you balance the, this quote unquote need to be objective in your research? And, and how did that play out in, in this over this decade that you've been working on the book and this research? Right. You probably don't even know it, but you just stumbled into a debate within academia that has been raging. And I think the New York Times covered it a few weeks ago. So the president of the American Historical Association right now, back at the end of 2022, wrote this piece that was about the importance of 
distancing history from what is going on presently. And he does not do 20th or 21st century history, which those of us who are engaged in anything connected to social or economic justice, we tend to ask questions about what is happening or what we see. And then those questions inform what we're examining historically. Sometimes it emerges from personal places. And that's something that is typical for anybody who's doing things like women's studies, Latinx studies, um, Atham history, black studies, right? Anybody who are in, who's in these different zones um, tends to ask personal questions and the historical is then built from there. Because what we're doing is that we're saying there is a present day issue and how did we get to this? How did... How did this problem emerge and what's the history behind it? And so it's not really that hard to be objective. The difference is, is where does the question or the initial interest emerge from? And what the president of the AHA was saying is that he is of a generation of scholars who walked into an archive and found a really interesting box and continued to look through it and did very did excellent archival systematic work. What you start to see out of a newer generation of scholars is that we are asking questions that have present day implications. And we're learning this from a generation of scholars who came of age, those of who tended to be our mentors, who were active in civil rights movements, right? You didn't get women's studies in universities until well after the civil rights movement happened. You don't get the emergence of women's history until into the first articles being published are in the late 60s. You don't get Afiam studies departments. You don't get Latinx studies. The first books that were studied or that were written on Latinxes in the US came out in the late 1980s, right? So we're talking about studies that are relatively new. Whereas if you're looking at colonial Virginia, you have a whole different, you know, way of doing it. But that also means that the way that we write and those sources that we look at are different. Because when you're doing work on marginalized populations, nobody else in the past thought they were important. And when you walk into an archive, the information that you have available and what is archived is based on what a library thought was important, important enough to take up space, what a group of people thought was important, important enough to donate to an institution, and then what is cataloged. So there's all different kinds of levels of access that are a part of that that are also deeming who is historically worthy, which has an impact on what gets written. So if you are writing about groups of people, you are recovering stories of Latinxes, you are looking at um, histories of black women and men, you are asking questions that have these large implications, you have to go out and find that, right? The process of me doing research is different from somebody who's like, I am going to study this thing and all of this work is available in the National Archives in collections Y through Z. It's a different process um, for us, but it doesn't mean that it is any less scholarly, that it is any less engaged. It just means that it takes, in some ways, like additional like work to make it happen. But it is still right. Fascinating yeah. conversation, and it's not limited to uh, to history, right? Yeah. I mean, this conversation is playing out in academic anthropology and in science and in journalism and in lots of other fields, I think. Right. And I mean, um, the more engaged that we get, the more... Right, threatening that we become. Right, the legislation that you see passing in Florida exactly. right, it's is very much the same time yeah. that, that that 
that conversation is uh, people are trying to attempt to limit that conversation. Right. And what like Danielle was talking about, I'm a member of the Immigration and Ethnic History Society and the work that we all do, it's a it's everybody in the US who does immigration and ethnic history and we are routinely called to um, participate in asylum-seeking cases or to um, write the, to explain why somebody um, needs asylum on the basis of special cases or whatever. What we do in those depositions is that we're providing the historical background of what has happened in a home country, what would happen if they returned on the basis of who they are and why they're applying, right? So scholarly work isn't just saying, you know, that, well, it is a big thing, right? If you can create movements and excitement and things like the marker and mural, but there are the things that you don't see where we play a critical role in, um, you'll always have depositions for Supreme Court cases, Mm -hmm. right? Like the Dobbs decision um, that came out earlier this year, the American Historical Association and the Organization of American Historians wrote an in-depth um, deposition that they, um, I'm sorry, amicus curiae that they submitted as part of that case because they were asked. And what it did was to give the entire history of abortion in the United States, which reached way back right into the 17th century, explaining how commonplace it was, how accessible it was, and how ideas have changed over time. So when the decision came down with the majority opinion saying that it historically was not a part of the U.S. fabric, and that also the Constitution does not defend that, historians were uh, in an uproar because we're like, not only is that not true, not only are you misinterpreting history, but you had the documents right in front of you that explained how. That's fascinating. Uh, So if you're listening, if you're just joining us, I'm enthralled, so that's why I'm kind of like, you're listening to the voice of Dr. Sarah McNamara. She's the author of Ybor City, Crucible of the Latina South, um, it's available for, for pre-order right now. It comes out on April 11th. We're doing pretty great on, on, on time here. We have a question from uh, Mario in, in Tampa. So we're going to get uh, Mario on right now. Uh, Mario, are you there? Hey, guys. Hey. Wonderful, fascinating, and tremendous show this morning. Um, so Thank grateful you. to have been in the uh, audience last night to experience that firsthand. It's not really a question so much as, as it is a comment. Just that I, it dawned on me now as, as we're hearing Sarah talk and, of course, Patrick, um, that it might just be the next book or the book thereafter that Sarah's going to write that might help us finally break the cycle of this ridiculous embargo. It's not because she's just continuing to chisel away at the underpinnings of what has kept the Miami cabal in control of all of this for all this length of time. The time that the Tampa experience kind of be brought to the forefront. Patrick has been hammering on this forever. Sarah's uh, another champion in the cause. I just wanted to say thank you. Everybody needs to buy this book, read this book, and if they don't already subscribe to it, like I said, they do that as well. So thank you, guys. We love you for the work you're doing, and, and please carry on. Thank, thank you, Mario. That's uh, Mario, Mario Nunez there. Um, if you don't know, the Tampa Native Show, uh, the number one Tampano in Tampa. <laughs> um, actually... And uh, we, so I got some time here. Um, we're here with Dr. Sarah McNamara, author of Ybor City Crucible of the Latina South. A big message in this book, Dr. McNamara, is about how figures, icons, if you will, we're talking about murals uh, yeah. of movements, really did rely on a collective effort of the community to get things done. And last night, the topic of, of, of fascism came up and, and how it may or may not be something we need to think <laughs> about in these um, current times, and you talked about how uncontroversial your mural was a year ago <laughs> when, when it first came up. What lessons yeah. does your book teach us about this idea of we and, and these collective efforts that may or may not be necessary when someone talks about protests or collective action today? 
I mean, if you do not show that you oppose something, then it's inevitably going to happen. Um, it's so the um, the process of the mural, just as I said last night, right? Putting a mural on the side of a wall that said anti-fascist, um, I knew it was like, that was like walking the line about a year ago, but I didn't, it was not as nerve wracking as it became as the project was coming to an end. I was holding my breath the whole time. I was like, oh my God, is someone going to pull funding? Is somebody going to destroy this? I don't know what's going to happen, but it ended up going well. And the one thing that I've learned in the process is that I'm not really sure that most people know what fascism is, what it means, or what anti-fascism is. Um, And I think that also extends to words like I was talking to a reporter yesterday, like communism and socialism. And because these words have emerged, at least in public discourse, as being an accusation that is made by a politician anytime they disagree with something, which disagreeing with something and calling it saying that somebody is a communist are two very different things, right? If you're driving down the road, I remember in the last election seeing a billboard with Kathy Castor and communist under it, who is, you know, a very moderate Democrat. And the idea that she had a billboard that said that I, um, I just started laughing and I hadn't been, I hadn't been home in a while. And I was just like, what is happening here? (laughs) I know. I was like, what is happening here? That is as far away from reality as it can be, but propaganda can play a really important role and media can also play a very important role. And one of the things that's different about the 1930s and right, and Patrick's family is very much a part of this legacy is that there was a robust and engaged media system in Ybor City. And what Danielle, what you were talking about having a news program that is in Spanish language for recent arrivals and for asylees and refugee and um, you know refugee seekers is super important because it creates an avenue for people to know what's going on. In Ybor City, right, there was La Gaceta that was published daily. There were also other newspapers that were translating news from around the world. You had the lector system where somebody was reading and translating local Tampa newspapers. So they knew what other people were saying about them, right? So people were plugged in consistently and believed that if they came here and they were looking for a way to have a to have a more just life, right? Because you didn't necessarily find a better life all around, right? You found a place where you were all of a sudden somebody else, you were marginalized, the Klan was very active, the police force was a part of those systems, right? This wasn't necessarily unilaterally better in many ways, but it did give access to free speech in a way that they didn't have access to prior. And they used it and they activated it by through collective protest, even when they couldn't vote. But that's one of the advantages that we have right now is that we can vote. And even though I was sitting in Texas, I was sitting there and I was getting ready to go in and teach a women's history class. And I'm just sitting there watching the votes come in from the mid, from the last elections in Tampa. Mm-hmm. And I, I felt like my face was just getting hot as I was watching a report of a 7% turnout in the city. And if we're thinking about how these things happen, it's because, you know, people don't show up. 
So you have to show up physically, and you have to go vote. There you go. And that's the voice of Dr. Sarah McNamara. Her new book, Ybor City, Crucible of the Latina South, is out April 11th. You're listening to WMNF Tampa. I want to thank Dr. McNamara. I really want to thank the publisher of La Gaceta, Patrick Mantego, is here with us today. My co-host, Ben Montgomery, Skip Sassy, our board operator, and Mitch Perry, who joined us uh, from Tallahassee today. I'm taking Hang this thing there, all the way up to the, uh, the, the NPR news. Real quick, in 30 seconds, Dr. McNamara, what do you mm-hmm. say to young people who want to do... What you do right now? Oh God, be a professor, and, and, <laughs> or just and, and write a book like yours in twenty engaged? seconds. How, oh, how does a young woman do that? Just start to do it. Decide that you're going to do it, and don't let somebody tell you that you can't. Thanks so much. Uh, thank you so much to our guests. Thank you for listening. This has been the Skinny on WMNF Tampa. My name is Ray Roa, the editor in chief at Creative Loafing Tampa Bay. Joined by Ben Montgomery, hey. Mitch Perry up in Tallahassee. Thank you to Patrick. Thank you to Dr. McNamara. We'll see you next week.